Hello and welcome to everyone to episode two of the True Blue Crime podcast. I am your host Dan and before I get into today's episode I'd like to take a second to thank everyone who supported my first episode and my first venture into podcasting. Since I received such great support for episode one and such great feedback from episode one I decided to go ahead and make a Facebook page Uh, under True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook. That will be the main outreach that I have via social media in regards to updates on future podcast episodes. I also started a website under truebluecrimeproductions.com that is under construction at this time, but I hope to be using it in the future to expand the podcast. And finally, I set up a Patreon account under True Blue Crime Productions. Any support via the Patreon site would be greatly appreciated as I plan to keep most of my podcasts in the future free to download, free to listen to, and Patreon will be a way in which I will be able to continue to do so. So if you have the financial capability, I appreciate any and all Patreon support. Also, please rate and review the podcast via Apple Podcasts uh, helps me out greatly. So with all that business aside, I'd like to get into today's episode, which is uh, going to be titled The Superbike Murders Part 1. Now, if anybody is familiar with the Superbike Murders or the suspect involved, they know that the case itself extends well beyond what I'll be talking about today, but the crimes are so extensive, I decided to break it up into multiple parts. This episode will cover the Superbike murders, and a future episode or two will cover the other crimes and the suspect and his trial. So without any further ado, I'll get into the Superbike murders part one. Now this was a case that was presented to me at a law enforcement training several years ago while the case was still unsolved. It has obviously, as I mentioned earlier, has been solved since then. But I felt it was such a interesting and tragic case to listen to that I wanted to present it in a way where the suspect had not been identified, the motive had not been identified, uh, etc. So that people may come to their own conclusions or concoct their own theories as we go along. And then I will, future episode, kind of break down what the suspect said actually happened and why he did what he did. So, again, this is the Superbike murders. Uh, This was a nickname given to a quadruple homicide that occurred outside of Chesney, South Carolina on November 6, 2003. So we're approaching almost the 20th anniversary of this, uh, which will be later this year. The four victims of this include the owner of the Superbike Motorsports Shop, man named Scott Ponder, who was 30 years old at the time of the murders, his mother, Beverly Guy, aged 52, his best friend and business-slash-shop manager, Brian Lucas, who was age 29, and the shop mechanic, who was Chris Sherbert, age 26. Uh, As I said, I will not cover the suspect, and, and just as a side note, I will not be naming any of these episodes after the suspect in any of these cases, uh, just something that I feel 
needs to change in our, our media today that whether it be a school shooter, workplace violence, or serial killer, or, or you know even just a single victim homicide suspect, anytime that we blast their name and all over the news, it, it gives them recognition, I feel, that is detrimental um, to a certain degree. So uh, I'll always title the episodes either based on the nickname given to them in the media or what they're commonly referred to or potentially using the victims' names if, if that's more appropriate. But in this case, it's the Superbike Murders. So just a timeline of events in regards to the uh, Superbike Motorsport Shop itself. The shop itself opened in 2001. So Scott Ponder, who was the owner, one of the victims, this guy was a huge motorcycle enthusiast. So he opens Motorbike and Power Sports Dealership, which to me is one of those gambles entrepreneurs take. He was in his late 20s, married, um, wanting to start a family, and but he ventures down a path that he obviously had a clear love for and knowledge of, and he starts up this Superbike Motorsports. Now it's 2001, so while the internet is around cell phones are around um they haven't quite reached the peak that we see them at today but scott did have a vision for using the internet to sell motorcycles motorcycle parts accessories apparel whatnot and as a result of him kind of being one of the pioneers in uh, internet sales especially in the area of, of power sports motorsports thor did very well so in their first year they did uh, over a million dollars in business and this again million dollars in in 2001 so probably would be considered even more successful than a million dollars today but so on board with scott coming into this this venture is his best friend brian as i mentioned earlier he kind of came in as the service manager slash business manager i guess for the shop Brian also loved motorcycles and power sports, so it was, it was a natural fit that the, the two best friends could start up the shop, work together, and and sell something that they, they love to people that are enthusiastic about it. So also along for the ride is Scott's mom, Beverly Guy. Beverly, as much as I read, seemed like she was more around the shop just to kind of support Scott and help him out. She ran errands for the shop and, and kind of did some, you know, more the the tasks of keeping the shop in order and whatnot so i don't know how much she was an employee or on the payroll like basically the only thing i could find about her was this that she was often around the shop and liked to spend time with scott like to spend time at the shop as i mentioned the business is a success and uh they're often often rolling so you know by 2003 by the time of the of this incident the shop had been open a couple years was doing really well and you know, things are going well for Scott. He'd actually been able in those two years to expand the shop to have more inventory and a larger uh, maintenance area for the motorcycles and whatnot. He was married to the love of his life and she was pregnant with their first child. And the shop itself, which in looking at Google Maps, it's it's just outside this, what I would consider a small town of, of Chesney, South Carolina. It's a few miles out of town, kind of on a rural road, but it, it it became a, a hangout for Scott Bryan's friends and, and who were often enthusiasts in motorcycles and power sports. So, you know, they would stop by during their rides on their motorcycles and, you know, just to spend time with with Scott and Brian and at the shop and window shop and buy some stuff and whatnot. So 
you know, this is this. Although it's in a kind of a rural location, it is a a, a popular hangout for people to stop by. So that leads into Thursday, November sixth, two thousand three. One of Scott and Brian's friends, identified as Noel Lee, uh, he calls up the store. This is early afternoon, around two thirty eight, I believe, somewhere around there, and mentions he's going to stop by. Uh, the store in a little bit. Now again, we talked, this is 2003. A lot of people had cell phones, but just given the rural location of this, I didn't don't know how many people would have had cell phones and what type of coverage there would have been. So from all accounts, it appears that, uh, you know, Noel likely called from a landline to the store's landline to speak to them and let them know that he was going to be stopping by. So the ride takes Noel about seven minutes to get to the store, and when he arrives, he finds absolute devastation. He comes across, first in the parking lot, comes across Scott and Brian, and they're laying in pools of blood. Now, I read somewhere in the research that Noel believed this was a prank of some sorts, and I guess given the proximity to Halloween, this was November 6th, Halloween would have been a week, the weekend before, uh, maybe... Noel thought, you know, there's some leftover Halloween prank stuff or something. Um, and, and the fact that he had called ahead and said he was going to be stopping by and they knew it would only take him a few minutes to get there, like that they staged this prank. I couldn't find anywhere in the research that said Scott and Brian were real pranksters. But, you know, given their age, late 20s, early 30s, and uh, seemed by all accounts outgoing guys, maybe they had some prankster in them. But, but, Tragically for Noel, uh, what he thought was a prank, he began kind of nudging Brian with his foot, telling him to get up, and then realized that that uh, his friend was was dead. Uh, so he run, uh, Noel runs into the store. Inside the store, he finds uh, Scott's mother, Beverly, uh, deceased in the hallway outside of a bathroom, and uh, Chris, the mechanic, deceased, laying over a motorcycle in the shop so all four people who are in the store are dead uh, noel uses the store's phone to call 911 and and you know at this point i'll i'll, I'll give noel um a little bit of kudos in the fact that he doesn't know what's going on he doesn't know what he walked into and he has to know that he just talked to somebody on the phone seven minutes ago and they were alive and well so the, there's a very good chance that the person who did this could still be in the store and he decided to stick around and call 911. He could have left, got back in his vehicle or on his motorcycle and rode away and made a call from somewhere else. But the fact that he, that he stuck around and made the call from the shop, you know, I, I give him credit and, and some bravery points for that for sure. But... Anyway, he contacts the police, and they are on their way and on scene within a few minutes. So, you know, in this case, it's 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 very rare that a unwitnessed homicide is going to be found that quickly and have that small of a timeline. Had it not been for Noel calling in advance, you know, they could have looked at and they would have looked at register receipts to see when the last customer made a purchase. But this is a Thursday afternoon. Even if the store is successful, there could be a time period of you know over an hour or so in which a sale wasn't made, or even longer. And you know if that's all police had to go on, it, it would have created an even 
more difficult window, ultimately the timeline isn't what breaks or, or doesn't break the case, but just something that I thought I would mention is that when you have that small of a timeline on an unwitnessed murder, it does make things a little easier for police. So we talked about the timeline. Um, we have seven minutes between when no calls, and that that opens up the door for police to maybe suspect that the last customer in the store could be involved because from the time of the last of that phone call to Noel arriving only being seven minutes, if there was any customer in the store during that time, if they're the last person there, there's a good chance that they're either a witness to the killings or they are the killer themselves. So they look at um, the, the register tape, find who the last customer is, and they start asking questions as to what they saw. Now, being that this case is almost 20 years old, there wasn't a whole lot of information in regards to the investigation itself. All I found was references to, to different things. So the, the two main suspects that were developed off of this short timeline and the last customer being there uh, was that there was a man and a woman in the area that, that were known to police, known to locals, and they were known to be drug users. So it was kind of one of those things they were seen both in the area before and after the murder. And they... So they were on police radar. But as we'll talk about a little bit later, um, the main reason that they were considered to be suspects, other than proximity to the area, is the fact they're drug users, and, and drug users often don't have jobs and are looking for money for more drugs. And this was a successful business, so it's possible that they may have committed a robbery in order to uh, fuel their drug habits and the robbery went wrong or, or whatever it may be but ultimately as as we'll talk about later there is no money missing from the registers and i couldn't find anything about the safe being open or closed or whatnot or if there was even a safe at this business but basically the police kind of went along the route of there was no money missing therefore this was not a robbery therefore they did not believe it was related to this couple and they were ultimately deemed not to believe to have been involved. The last witness in the store, or the last, sorry, the last customer in the store uh, did identify a unknown male party that was in the store as he was leaving. He said there's a couple suspicious things about this, this guy. Uh, one, that he was wearing a, a leather coat, as he described it, and I don't know if this meant leather, you know, coat as in like a, a leather full body duster style coat or whether it was a leather coat like a uh, somebody riding a sport bike might wear. But ultimately he said it was odd because it was a warm November afternoon in South Carolina and, and this coat seemed to be too bulky to just something that a normal person wouldn't wear while out for a ride or, or going to the shop itself. And the second thing he said is that the man was talking to uh, staff in regards to a motorcycle that was for sale on the floor of the shop and that the, the, the guy didn't seem to know very much about motorcycles. It was almost as if he was buying something without having a lot of knowledge and just it just struck the customer as odd that this guy was 
again, out of place in clothing, out of place in terms of his knowledge of, of purchasing a motorcycle. And so cops immediately went with this guy being potentially the, the suspect or the killer in this case. But uh, he was not identified at the time, and so all police had to go on was the crime scene itself, this witness description of this unknown male, and the short timeline. So as a result, some theories developed rather quickly. You know, in all cases where there's a homicide, police are going to fall back on, on some of these classic uh, motives for for murder the first being money so whether that be a robbery whether that be somebody owed the money whatever it may be um, police have to go down that right route now in terms of financials the the as i mentioned earlier the store was doing great they did not need money as far as anyone could tell and they were making plenty of money on their own and there was no money missing so there didn't seem to be a connection between the finances of the stores or somebody targeting the store for financial motives for the murder. So robbery pretty quickly ruled out, money in general pretty quickly ruled out as, a, as the main motive for the murders. Now another common area, as we talked about earlier, uh, is drugs. And uh, a lot of times drugs and violence, or drugs, weapons, murder, go together. So investigators had to look at the possible connection that drugs would have in regards to this now brian and scott were not known for any drugs illegal activity anything like that so and, and scott's mother beverly was not either however chris the mechanic he'd only been working there for a short amount of time and it was known to uh, the staff and, and members of the staff's family that Chris had a past involving drugs and in fact Chris was supposed to appear in court the following Monday so four, four or five days down the road from, from the murders on uh, some pretty serious drug offense charges and according to the research that I did the drug charges included other people and from everything that I read, you know, Chris was doing a great job at the shop. He had a, a steady paycheck. He was showing up for work. And it's one of those things where you wonder if drugs in his past had come back to bite him as he was maybe looking to do some type of a plea agreement to turn state's evidence against some of the other people that he was with or as often as the case with kind of the lower ranking, you know, either the users or the low-level dealers. I don't know what, what Chris's charges were exactly, but a lot of the times if, if somebody's caught just in possession of a, of a controlled substance, they're given the chance to identify who they bought it from. If that person's arrested, they go after them to find out who distributed them the drugs. And again, a lot of the times once the courts get involved and police get involved and somebody starts naming names to try to lessen their sentence or get them out of their charges altogether, obviously that's going to cause problems for people up the chain. So with Chris being one of the victims, it was possibly uh, drug connected. The police had to look into that angle. And 
also in this case. So Chris is found in the back shop slumped over a motorcycle. Beverly's found out in the hallway outside of a bathroom. And Scott and Brian are found in the parking lot outside the front door. So the natural presumption there is that Chris was killed first because it appeared he had the least reaction to what was going on because this shop is not very large. I looked at some photos of it online and you're talking, you know, a kind of a double garage size shop with sales room floor on it. So maybe a hundred feet by 80 feet total size building somewhere around there is just a rough guess, but we're not talking a large warehouse or a, a, a large strip mall size building or anything like that so when chris is shot in the back by this suspect the other people beverly scott and brian are going to hear those gunshots and they're going to react and if if you follow the trail of victims with chris having almost no reaction beverly's out in the hallway so wherever she was she was maybe you know heard the shots either came out to investigate saw the the shooter and she tried to uh, escape and was shot there well brian and scott having likely been in the front of the store they would have been the ones that were most likely to have the most time to react and that is how they got out to the parking lot but then were shot and killed either as they were leaving the store or in the parking lot itself so by all accounts it, you know, it doesn't make sense if you go the other way around. If if Scott and Brian are shot out in the parking lot, whether or not Beverly would have heard it to come out to investigate, I guess that one could go either way. But Chris in the back of the shop is likely going to hear, if not Brian and Scott being shot, he's definitely going to hear Beverly being shot inside the same building that he's in. And he's going to react by running to a door or going to arm himself or something like that. He's not going to be, you know, leaning or you know, still working on a motorcycle at the time he gets shot. So, police had to consider that Chris is the first one shot. Was he the actual target of this shooting and is it related to his his drug past? So, kind of a popular theory that, you know, police had to follow up on and kind of keep open or keep in the back of their minds as they as they looked at other theories. Now we get into one of the the most classic reasons for murder and that is love and in this case uh there are some very unfortunate circumstances that that we're going to talk about here that led police to believe that this was a possible motive but then ultimately just created a lot of heartache for everybody so basically scott and brian were best friends so investigators had to look at whether there was any bad blood between them which can happen with best friends when you're talking about wives girlfriends significant others etc basically they had to rule out any type of love triangle when any, when anybody's murdered the close family member spouse etc is, is significant others looked at the closest in this case melissa was looked at you know the one thing i have to say is Everybody, for the most part, is a stranger when the police are investigating. Now, it's not always the case. Sometimes well-known criminals are victims of crime, and and the police may know them before uh, they're investigating their murder. But in a lot of cases, 
the first this is the first time the police are ever having contact with this person and so they don't know the victim's history they don't know the suspect's history if there is a suspect in mind so they have to look at the victim and start looking around and and when they look around they often don't know the surviving spouses significant others etc of these victims so now you've got a quadruple homicide and you do so you do have survivors you have Beverly's husband you have uh, the significant others of Scott and Brian and I, I couldn't read anything on whether Chris had a significant other that was looked into or anything along those lines but Chris was already being looked at for his, for the drug history we know that so uh, in the case of Scott and Brian you know they're looking at the significant others so Melissa Scott's wife comes into into the limelight here uh, police are going to look at her and they want to find a motive and as you know Scott and Melissa were going to have their first child and so some questions probably came up naturally that if if there was any issues with a love triangle or anything like that could there be issues with who's the father of the baby now this is obviously a long shot and if things had gone differently probably wouldn't have even made the news or would have possibly not even gone outside of the investigation itself but basically during an interview in which the police asked melissa to come in so they could ask her some questions uh this is after um, the child was born uh they uh, waited around until melissa did a diaper change of the baby and were able to use the discarded diaper of the baby to test the baby's DNA. Now, as I mentioned before, there's gonna be a bit of a shocker coming up here, and it wouldn't have been a shocker, and we probably wouldn't even be talking about it if this had all been handled correctly. But basically, the DNA comes back as a match with Brian as the father, not Scott, not her husband, her deceased husband. So now, police are looking at this as Melissa was having an affair with Brian. Brian is the father of what Scott would have believed to have been his baby. So this opens up all types of avenues for why somebody might want Scott and or Brian dead. And the key suspect here being Melissa. Whether she was worried Brian was going to tell Scott. Whether she was worried Scott was going to find out and and leave her whatever it may be um, this this creates a huge motive for Melissa to either carry out the crime herself or have somebody commit commit the murder and and again Scott and Melissa are doing well financially thanks to the success of the Superbike motorsport or motor store motorsport store so hiring somebody to, to kill Scott and or Brian would not be out of the question in terms of financial you know, viability. And then we get into the whole, the other stuff that comes along, which I didn't find in the research, um, but life insurance policies, anything along those lines, survivor benefits, uh, her inheriting the, the entirety of the store and its success and, and everything. So once you open that that door or in this case blow it wide open for motive uh, you can run down any number of rabbit holes as to why this crime would have would have occurred now in this case they obviously confront Melissa she adamantly denies that Brian could be the father of, of her 
of her and Scott's child. She demands they test the DNA again. I believe she even provided them with a better sample of DNA just to make sure that they didn't mess up the actual sample taken from the child, which again comes back on a match for Brian. So Melissa again is adamant, and she even says that her and Scott were having troubles conceiving and had to have medical intervention in order to have this child. So there is, and she knows for a fact she did not have any sexual relations with Brian. So she's telling the police there is no way that this is accurate. Eventually, the crime lab realizes that they had switched Brian and Scott's samples. And this was likely due to the fact that they were found deceased close to each other. So samples of blood would have been taken at the scene and it looks like in this case either it was a case of misidentification of those samples at the scene or misidentification of which swab was taken from which pool of blood and ultimately they determined that no there is zero chance that brian was a father that scott was in fact the father of that child there was no affair there was no reason for Melissa to try to silence or get rid of either either of these guys and she endured terrible tragedy you know a ter- terrible tragedy of losing her husband the love of her life and the father of her unborn child and now she's a widow raising a, raising a small child on her own and she had to face the scrutiny of of the public and the police believing that she had something to do with this, that she was had been unfaithful. I mean, just all in all, a, a terrible situation for her um, to, to have to endure. So ultimately, police are able to, to move on from Melissa being a suspect, love being a motive. And, you know, uh, I think I read somewhere that Melissa had made some type of a statement about another thing that really upset her was how much time and effort the police department put into investigating her as the killer and how that time could have been better used trying to find the real killer. So that this mistake cost so many different, you know, or I should say has so many different costs associated with it uh, from the human cost to the cost of the investigation and whatnot. So um, the final motive that I'm going to bring up here is another age-old motive of revenge. So if you clear the fact that there's robbery doesn't appear to be motive, drug still could be, that we don't know, love doesn't appear to be, then what you're left with is revenge. And so now you have to look at, did the store have any enemies? Um, and revenge can be one of many things. It can be somebody who's upset at the store. It could be uh, for something they did to them or perceived to be done to them or it could be another store in the area is upset that they've taken so much so much sales away from them you know if, if another store is having to close its doors because this one's become more successful there could be that motive for revenge i guess is a, is one way to look at it so i'm sure all these these angles were looked at other stores were looked at uh, customers they went through the, the, the entire customer directory they called up every customer and talked to all of them that would call back they sent letters to every customer to see if they would would know anything or would be willing to come in and talk and, and several customers did talk with police in regards to their dealings with the with the shop but um, nothing really really came of that so 
now I'm going to take time to, to break down the crime scene itself. This is something, I mean, we're, we're basically done with kind of the background of the victims and the investigative or the, the motives of, for the investigation, because that really drives between the victims, the victimology, and the potential motives. That's really going to drive most of the investigation. But, but the final part and the part that I'm you know, very familiar with is the crime scene itself. So I kind of want to talk about the crime scene as it's described in my research and kind of what that would have told me or what it told investigators as to what they're looking for. So when I break down the crime scene, I first off, I'm going to say, what does a crime scene like this say to me? So I mentioned I looked at Google Maps. This is a kind of, uh, I shouldn't say kind of, it is a remote location outside of a small town. Uh, it's a few miles out of town off of what looks like kind of two-lane road. And so you're not going to have a whole lot of either audio witnesses that would have heard anything. You're not going to have a lot of visual witnesses unless somebody happens to be driving by or in the area. Uh, so likely all you've got is is the scene itself and what the scene is telling you so that you have to kind of let the scene be your witness. Uh, I went to a training once with a veteran homicide investigator who described every homicide investigation is, is, it, is like playing poker and you don't get to control what cards you're dealt. You only get to control how you, how you use those cards to, to try to solve the case. So in this case, you're talking about you get some positives, you get a very short timeline, you get a witness who sees somebody as he's leaving the last, you know, last person to make that purchase as he's leaving the store that is your likely suspect. You know, you're getting some help along the way in terms of you don't have a whole lot of rabbit holes to chase down. You know, when we talked about if 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 somebody had taken the cash out of the drawers even to make to stage it to look like a robbery that opens so many more avenues of approach in this case it because it wasn't it was just a few months prior or earlier that year there was a bank robbery in the area that is covering a lot of true crime cases too because it's still unsolved uh but kind of one of those smaller savings and loans style bank small town bank and uh was, i believe a single teller that was working and somebody went in forced the teller into the back shot and killed the teller and and, and took cash and it was right along an interstate i want to say it was in greenville south carolina but don't don't quote me on that i, sh I should have looked it up um but i'm just kind of going off the top of my head here but it if that you know when that type of a robbery happens and now you have another rural location robbery you kind of start to think are these connected do we have to go down those rabbit holes you know, go back to the couple that were out the drug users that were seen before and after if if, if money is found to have been taken do police have to look at them you know more so as i said investigators in this case despite having a very difficult case to solve there, there were some some things that, that made the case at least a little bit easier on the surface level. And that's, again, all the stuff that you're going to see in the crime scene. So the fact that there didn't appear to be money missing and the rural location of it, it kind of lends you to believe this. Now we're talking about a, a clearly planned tactical style attack on this store and on the, the staff of this store. You're looking at the fact that this appears to be very organized, very thought out in advance. The killer 
would have had to bring his, bring his own gun. It wasn't known that a gun was stored at the store. And even if there was a gun at the store, obviously nobody tried to get to it or use it. And if there was a gun at the store, somebody would have had to known where it was and gone and retrieved it. So in this case, it definitely appears the suspect brought a weapon to the store that was later used in the homicide, uh, likely at this point that he planned uh, to bring the gun, planned to use it. And he also had a plan in place, it appears. It did not appear to be random from what police could tell. There didn't appear to be any sign of a struggle between the suspect and any of the victims. You know, uh, the mechanic found dead over the motorcycle. Uh, the other victims found in what appears to be an attempt to flee or whatnot. So it's, it doesn't appear that there was an argument that would have drawn people in that would have led to any type of a scuffle or anything along those lines. So really it looks like somebody who had a targeted plan to go in there and commit an act of violence against these four people. As, as a part of that plan, just as I talked about the, the order of the killing does appear to be part of this killer's plans. Now if the killer just walks in that front door and, and starts shooting and he knows there's kind of the shop in the back and, and there's likely a mechanic back there, it's going to be very hard for him to control what that mechanic does. Uh, based on the, the pictures I saw, there's at least two large uh, garage doors off the back of the shop that you know would have brought vehicles in and out, motorcycles in and out. Being the, the witness that it was a warm November day, I'm going to assume there's a good chance that those garage doors would have been open and would have provided a very easy way for anybody in the back of the store to run out um, if they heard gunshots at the front of the store. And then you're talking, based on the picture, it's a pretty rural area. There's ditches, hills, some forested area, whatnot. If you're not able to get to the back of the store in time, there's a good chance that that person uh, back there could make an escape. And if they know you or could identify you, it's done. Also, you have to figure that the back of the, sh the shop, it's a, it's a mechanic shop, so there's a lot of tools back there that can be turned into makeshift weapons, large wrenches, pipes, whatnot. Um, so the last place you're going to want somebody to potentially arm themselves is the back of the shop. So that's the point in which you want to start your attack, not the front of the shop, and, and go back into an unknown area where somebody might arm themselves. So again, it appears like the suspect planned out his order of attack, who he was going to kill, when they were going to, when they were going to kill them in order to control the situation. Things. This appeared to be somebody who was going to be comfortable with killing. Uh, this was not something where after they made their first kill they were going to uh, have kind of a moral dilemma over what they had done or have any time to think about what they had done or anything like that. The time it would have taken him to shoot Chris in the back uh, area of the of the shop and then walk into the area where Beverly was shot and then shoot Brian and Scott either at the front of the store as they got into the parking lot. Uh, this is all happening in a matter of seconds and every fraction of a second even is going to make a difference in how far somebody's going to get away where they're going to be able to get away to so this this was someone who showed up with a plan to commit as much violence in as short amount of time as possible 
Now, I remember hearing about the the case and thinking that this person, as, as I think they said, all the, the shots were fired from the same handgun. And I thought to myself, this this is a person who's comfortable with shooting whether they, and possibly has training on top of it, law enforcement or military training, and but at least a lot of time around guns. Now, again, this is the South, so it's more common to find people with, with experience with guns. But just police had to have been thinking that to com- commit these four murders in such a short amount of time with four victims and you're shooting, you know, other than the first one that you're basically surprising and executing, the other ones are going to be on the move. Uh, this person is, is very skilled and very uh, deadly with a gun. I think to myself, I've got six years of, of infantry uh, military training and 17 years of law enforcement training and for anybody who's watched too many TV and movies and haven't actually shot a handgun it is not as easy as they make it look in TV shows and movies a handgun is not a highly accurate weapon at distance unless you've spent a lot of time training and, and, and practicing even then you're talking about the adrenaline that's flowing through you as you're uh, you know, taking somebody else's life and doing it in a very short amount of time and in a very short window of, of uh, being able to uh, com- complete those shots. So it's just something that you're, you're not going to find the average person on the street able to kill four people in a very short amount of time with a handgun in an environment like that so when the suspect is going to be identified there's going to be some you know looking into his background to see uh, you know what I guess what he has done to become comfortable enough to be able to carry this out so you know he probably had to have knowledge of of how rural this area was he's likely been to the shop before at least once if not several times uh, just to know the layout of the shop, um, to know the layout of the area itself. It's not something I would imagine that somebody would wake up one day and just say, I'm going to drive to some random small town you know, motorcycle shop and commit this quadruple homicide. It's, again, likely something that would have required a lot of planning in terms of the timing of it, uh, of how he was going to get away from the shop, how we, who possibly would be able to hear or see him as he's coming and going so again he he likely is from the area has been to that shop at least once if not several times before maybe as a customer or just somebody who's been looking to stake the place out or uh, to look at the victims and then we talked about it before the lack of robbery as a motive the scene is going to tell you that and and there's you know, four victims that are dead, and as far as we know, there's no other eyewitnesses. We have the guy that's leaving the store before the murders occur, and then you've got Noel showing up seven minutes after he makes that phone call. As far as we know, nobody else showed up during the time frame that these homicides are occurring. Therefore, there's no reason, if robbery is the motive, that this suspect could not have taken money from the registers or from a safe or whatever it may be it's it's not as if 
somebody came along, the Noel came along and spooked the guy and he ran out the back or anything along those lines. This guy was alone in the store after killing these four people with no other witnesses and did not take any money. Um, so again, the scene is telling you that this is a cold calculated plan to kill these four people carried out by a very disturbed individual. And then no witnesses being left alive uh, also seems, again, something to be planned, something where the, the suspect knew he could kill these four people or had a pretty good idea he could kill these four people and didn't do it when there was you know, more people there or you know, it did it in a time period in which he believed he could get away with it. So the scene does say a lot, and, and I'll, I'll say I can't even imagine, you know, we used to talk about uh, with, our, with our crime scenes you know your, your ultimate you didn't want was an outdoor crime scene because potentially your your scene could go on for you know hundreds of yards if not you know a half mile or so especially when you're talking firearms and outside but anytime you're talking about multi-rooms or a very crowded uh, type of space you know these crime scene this crime scene would have been uh, an ex extreme nightmare to process in terms of um, just the number of items that would have had to been looked through trying to locate all the shell casings all the bullets all that kind of stuff so just when, when people think about this stuff I mean just for example when we were doing when we would do a training for a crime scene we'd put on a scenario and we'd have maybe four or five hours of the day to actually run through the scenario for the crime scene and we had to limit ourselves usually to at least one room maybe two but like say one bedroom or uh, one hotel room or something like that because once you get outside of a say a 10 by 10 12 by 12 foot room you're talking about hours and sometimes days of processing to get through these scenes which is again something that people from you know by watching tvs or movies when everything's done within an hour don't realize how long it actually takes to process these scenes and and how much information has to be it has to be absorbed and i'm not giving any leeway in this case to uh whoever messed up the the blood samples that created the havoc for for Melissa in this case, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying anything other than these scenes are chaotic and crazy and they never occur. Like unless you're in a major metropolitan police department, you likely don't have a dedicated crime scene unit per se that are working around the clock. You know, I, I worked in a pretty decent sized police department and all of our crime scene techs for the most part were patrol officers and it was very likely that I could work a 2 p.m. to midnight shift and turn around and uh, you know a homicide occurs at 11:45 if I'm lucky for bad timing it would be 11:45 uh because I'd still at least be at work but there's times I would put in a 10-hour shift you go home and sleep for an hour or two and you're getting called back in and a lot of these scenes are anywhere between 12 to 14 plus hours that you're processing and so you know we're all human lack of sleep lack of focus whatever it may be you know we make mistakes but that that was a costly one and that's one that, that can't be excused because of just the fallout that occurs down the road as a result of it so i think with that we'll end part one of the superbike murders i i, I covered you know, the crime itself, the victims, kind of some of the theories and, and 
what we learned or what what investigators learned early on about this and then then it sat for 16 years and we're going to talk in part two about uh, you know a suspect being developed it's it's kind of strange because i'm going to have to present the crimes that the suspect committed and then come back and and correlate it to uh the superbike murders there's just really no way around that um so I appreciate everyone sticking around, and uh, please stand by for part two of the Superbike Murders, uh, which will be coming hopefully within a day or two onto Apple Podcasts. Uh, and again, if you have any comments, you can get a hold of me. The email is trueblue-crime-productions at gmail.com. As a stated in the beginning uh, i do have the patreon site up and running so if you can financially uh, support via patreon i would love to be able to do some patreon shout outs to people who uh, support true blue crime productions and if not i completely understand i hope to keep making these free podcasts for people to listen to and enjoy and Uh, Leave me comments, questions, suggestions, and whatnot. So everybody take care, and we'll see you soon.